Let me lead us in prayer now as we come into our study of God's word. Father, I want to turn to you pleading for help. Our passage today is tough. One of the beauties of preaching through your books of the Bible is we can't escape the tough stuff. But Father, my heart grieves for hurting people on this subject. And there's a lot of broken hearts, a lot of hurting people. Father, would you refresh us with your divine perspective on this subject? Christians have messed this thing up for years. Help us. We want to hear from you. Speak by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a few months, Emily and I will be celebrating our 45th anniversary. It's incredible. That applause is for Emily. We're going to escape for a couple of weeks around then and uh, just do our own celebrations and relaxation and counting God's blessings on us, that type of thing. But, you know, uh, one of the things that I've learned through these years of marriage is that uh, marriage is never what you thought it was going to be. In fact, I've never talked to anybody that's been married for several years that their marriage turned out like they thought it was going to turn out. Some say it's worse, some say it's better, some say it's a mixture of the two, but everybody agrees it's going to be different. Someone has said planning for marriage is a lot like planning for a vacation. So you've been saving for a long time and you're really excited, you're getting on a plane and you're going south to see the big mouse in Florida. And you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this, and you've saved your nickels, and you even saved enough so that you can stay at one of those fancy resorts right there on site, so you can just take the tram in and, you know, not have to have transportation, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be great. You start packing weeks ahead of time. You've forgotten what you packed because you started packing so early. But you are so excited to go, and the night before the trip, you can hardly sleep. You're so excited. The morning of the trip, you get up, you head to the airport, you jump on the plane, and boy, you are there. You can't wait to get to Florida. You're on your vacation. It seems to be taking a long time for the plane to get there, but that's just because you're so excited to get there, and you're so anticipating. Finally, the plane lands. You get off the plane, and you find out somehow you got on the wrong plane, and you're in Switzerland. You're not in Florida. Now, you do not like the cold. That's why you were going to Florida. Switzerland is cold. Um, You have no warm clothes with you. You have a swimsuit with you. You love to swim. You hate to ski. In fact, you don't ski. But you're in Switzerland. You remain calm. You get a few warm clothes. You take several ski lessons, and before long... You are having the time of your life skiing in the Swiss Alps. It wasn't at all what you thought your vacation was going to be, but it's really good. It's just different. Never saw it coming. Marriage is like that. It's filled with never-saw-you-coming moments. We do need to remain calm and flexible, but unfortunately... Somewhere around half of our population will not do that, and they will seek to get out of their marriage and follow a path such as separation and or divorce. 
Our culture is obsessed with falling in love. We have movies unbelievable about couples that fall in love in the most unusual situations. The problem with falling in love is if you can fall into it, you can also fall out of it. And unfortunately, in our culture, when people fall out of love, they think that is the end of their marriage, and therefore, since they don't love each other, why bother staying together? Surprise of surprise, you come to the Bible and you see God bringing the first man and first woman to, uh, to a marriage. He institutes marriage, and never once in the passage is falling in love mentioned. In fact, love isn't even mentioned. And you go like, what? We think falling in love is contingent for a good marriage. And so when you fall out of love, you can get out of marriage. In many cultures of the world, marriages are arranged. And interestingly, in many of those countries, the divorce rate is lower than it is in our country where we select our own mates. I'm not advocating arranged marriages. But I am very concerned about people that think they fall in and out of love. Today, we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. And one of the beauties of studying through a book like this is when the next passage is tough, you can't escape it. It's there. Deal with it. That's my privilege today to deal with a passage where Jesus is teaching on this subject, divorce. We've reached a critical turning point in the ministry of Jesus. He's been ministering to the crowds, and he's been healing people everywhere, and now in the last several months of his ministry, he's going to change that focus to preparing his 12 for the time when he goes away, and they'll carry on the ministry. He has already started heading south to Jerusalem, and we know what will happen in Jerusalem. That's where he will be crucified. He knows what's coming. He's getting his disciples ready. And one of the critical things that they must learn, because whether it's the ancient world or the modern world, all disciples need to learn to handle, biblically, from God's perspective, the issue of divorce. And frankly, many of us as Christians have done a poor job of this. Many of those who are divorced feel like they are second-class citizens in the church. What a shame. It's not bad enough that their marriage broke up. Now they get punished by Christians. I am reading today where we have left off in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Glad to hear those pages turning. I wish I could hear your finger on the digital stuff, too. I can't hear that, but at least you're open. That's good. Get those Bibles opened. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> God then, uh, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some disciples came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That was because of the hard, uh, your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they, were in a house, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This has been the reading of God's word. <clears throat> now the challenge before us is to understand it and apply it. Whether you've never been married, whether you've been married more than once, whether you're married and separated, whether you're happily married, every one of us as a disciple of Christ needs to understand what Jesus is teaching here because this is the world that we live in. It is proliferated with divorce. Some people are turned off by passages like this and they say, Dan, skip it. I can't. God wrote it. We need to understand it. Some Christians hate divorce, and it translates to the divorcee that they themselves are hated. That may be true in some Christian circles. It is not true here at Calvary. I hope you see a different side of this issue today. My heart bleeds on these issues. Many of you in this room a number of you in our church leadership positions have experienced divorce. We are so thankful you are here. Christians need to turn this subject around and get it right from a biblical perspective. The passage begins with some background to the story, introducing us to the story in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. The text says, Jesus <clears throat> then left that place. Of course, the question is, I've underlined left that place. What was that place? It was Capernaum. Uh, Jesus did a lot of ministry around the Galilean area and per, uh, uh, this town that he had left, Capernaum is on the northwest corner when Emily and I were in Israel, we visited there, and Peter and Andrew had a house that was there. James and John and Matthew were all called to follow Jesus there. This was an important location. Jesus now leaves this area and is heading south. We know where he's going towards Jerusalem. Jesus left that place, and he went into the regions of Judea. He left the Galilee area. His Galilean section of his ministry is now behind him, and he moves to Judea, another section of his ministry, on his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. The text says that he moves into the region of Judea and he crosses the Jordan. It's very important to see that, even though you don't understand geography, because where he crossed, he is now into the area where King Herod reigns. Herod is the one who put John the Baptist in the jail for criticizing him for marrying a divorced woman. And the religious leaders are coming to Jesus in Herod's territory to test Jesus on the concept of divorce. They've been saying for a long time they want to get rid of Jesus. Back in Mark chapter 3, they were out to kill Jesus. And they've been looking for ways. Maybe this is their ticket. Maybe they can get Herod to take care of Jesus for them. So they pose the question about divorce. Those foxes, they know exactly what they're trying to do. They do. 
So the text says that Jesus crosses over the Jordan, he crosses the Jordan River, and again the crowds come to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Now while Jesus is focusing on his disciples, the crowds kept coming, he would deal with the crowds, but then turn his attention to his disciples. He's only got a few months left to train them and to teach them so that they are prepared to take over. And then in verse 2, the first part of it, it says, some Pharisees came and they tested him. This is the background for the story. They have him in Herod's territory. They're going to ask the tough question about divorce, hoping to find words to hang Jesus with. That's the plan. The plan has been launched. In that day, in the day of Jesus, divorce was a big issue like it is today. Divorce rates ran high, both in the Roman Empire and also in the Jewish synagogues and the Jewish side. The Jews were divided over who could and who couldn't get divorced. Sounds like churches today. There were two schools of thought in the day of Jesus. One said you could only get divorced in cases where there's something sexual going on and it's wrong, obviously, uh, some kind of sexual immorality outside of marriage. The other camp said, well, you can get divorced for any reason. If the woman burns your toast for breakfast, write her a decree of divorce and get rid of her. Prolific divorce. Because the culture is so divided in both Rome and among the Jews, and because this is Herod's territory, it is the perfect question to ask Jesus what his teaching is on divorce. These Pharisees are out to get him. And so now here is the trap. Starting in the second half of verse 2, some Pharisees came and they tested him by saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There it is. There's the question. The trap is set. Will Jesus walk into it or will he not? Notice how the question is posed from the standpoint of the man, not the woman. If a man divorces, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Unfortunately, there is some male abuse going on right here. The religious leaders, the position of of religious leaders towards the women, I'm sorry gals, they consider you property. The question is posed from the standpoint of the male, not from the standpoint of the female. Who cares what the female rights are? We only care about, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Notice how Jesus responds. Very clever. Jesus would often do this. When asked a question meant to hang him, he responds with a question. He says, what did Moses command you? In other words, it doesn't really matter what I've taught. The question is, what is the word of God? Let's go back into the Old Testament and see what the Old Testament teaches on this subject. This is an incredible statement because it's a great example of Jesus on a difficult issue pointing us back to the word to say, who cares who says what? What does God say about the subject? That is the far more important issue. And of course, it is sometimes difficult to discern these things. Now, let's face it. These religious leaders, if they were sharp, and they were, they probably already knew what Jesus taught about divorce and remarriage. Jesus had taught on this subject back in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He had already laid out the doctrines on divorce and remarriage. 
But the religious leaders come along here, they're not just, oh, Jesus, what do you think on this? They're trying to hang him. It's a test. So the religious leaders simply respond, and they say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know that this is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24. The opening verses. In Deuteronomy 24, it was necessary for God to regulate divorce. It was running rampant. So he had Moses write some law into the Old Testament to begin to regulate divorce. And in that regulation in Deuteronomy 24, basically Moses writes, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him for some reason, then he chooses to write her a decree of divorce and divorce her. He sends her away. She goes off and marries another man. He also finds something he doesn't like about her and divorces her, gives her, she's divorced twice now. Moses wrote, the woman can't go back to her first man if he wants her back and marry him again. That was the first regulation given on divorce. You can't go back to your previously divorced spouse if you've married another. Deuteronomy 24, opening verses. So God uses Moses to regulate and start the regulations on divorce, and there would be more that were coming, and we'll spell some of those out in just a few minutes. God stopped divorce for just any old reason. He regulated it. In the next few verses, Jesus will now take us back to the first marriage and why he instituted marriage and why then divorce had to be instituted. So he says in verse 6, Jesus begins teaching at the beginning. <clears throat> verse 6, uh, let's, yeah, there we go. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. We read that this morning in our call to worship, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. He made them male and female, male and female, he made them. So we're back to the beginning. We're at the creation story. And the next chapter, he institutes marriage, and he says in Genesis 2, 24, Jesus quotes it here, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will be one flesh so they're no longer two but one so Jesus has now taken us back to the first marriage in the Garden of Eden where there is not yet sin and he clearly says first man first woman Adam and Eve brought together by God love never mentioned falling in love never mentioned learn to love later learn to love each other because you're tied together in marriage and there and Jesus concludes by saying therefore what God has joined together let man not separate the general principle was marriage was to be the uniting of one man, one woman in marriage that would last. The two would become one. And he concludes by saying, therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. If God joined it, don't be breaking it up. That was the general rule for marriage when instituted in the unfallen world. The problem is, we now live in a fallen world. Marriage was made for a perfect world. Our world is no longer perfect. People are anything but perfect, and therefore relationships get messy. Some are far more messy than others. 
Don't you know it? Some marriages are so bad, so messed up, they cannot survive. And Jesus in this passage will explain why divorce is then regulated, why it is instituted. People get damaged in marriages. People get very hurt. Hearts are broken. We would step back and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we're Christians, God can do anything at all. That is correct. God can do anything. But notice how the passage is emphasizing that marriage was created for a perfect world. One man, one woman, united. Have you ever tried to put a marriage back together where one or both parties of the marriage are involved in unrepentant sexual immorality? They don't want to give it up? I have. It's very hard to rebuild trust in that marriage. Sometimes in a fallen world, you reach the point at which there's so much water over the dam, humanly speaking, it can't be healed. Jesus will explain that clearly in just a moment. Have you ever tried to put a marriage back together of one who was abusing the other prolifically? I mean really abusing. I'm not just saying physically. I'm saying emotionally, sometimes worse than physical abuse. I've tried to do that. And again, rebuilding trust is nearly impossible. We're committed to keep trying all the time. But God has stepped into the stream of humanity and damage on top of damage and interpersonal relationships, and he's brought a way in in a fallen world to end that nonsense of a marriage. The way some people treat their marriages is a joke about what God meant it to be from the beginning. And there is no oneness left in the relationship. In some of these situations, in certain situations, God allows divorce. You see, what God has put together, no person should take apart. If it's going to come apart, God will give you the grounds for that. Jesus now begins to train his disciples a little bit in this area. You will notice the text <clears throat> the text in verse 10, 11 and 12. Jesus now has separated from the religious leaders. The lesson has been learned. Uh, they couldn't trap him. And Jesus moves on with his disciples. But there is training to do of the disciples. So now the text is clear. Jesus has actually moved to a place where he is alone with his disciples. If the disciples are going to learn and minister in this fallen world... They're going to have to learn how to handle divorce, broken relationships, wounded hearts and spirits. Jesus was very clear when he spoke to the religious leaders. God did this because of the hardness of your hearts. Hearts get hard in a fallen world. People sin against each other. 
And they try to forgive and they try to patch up and they try to move on in the relationship and then more sin. And sometimes the sin gets to the point where it's not even the person's not repenting of their sin. They're not turning from it. They just keep sinning and doing what they want. And their hearts are very hard. And the other party realizes there's nothing left in the unity of the marriage. Jesus said because of the hardness of their hearts. This is the issue in a fallen world. And because of the hardness of hearts, divorce is introduced. And it has to be regulated lest more and more people jump to it. Jesus now in the closing verses of this passage speaks to his disciples and he trains them. He says in verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, this whole thing on divorce. Well, Lord, what do we do? I mean, this is a mess. I mean, it's everywhere. What do we do about this? Jesus knows he has to train these guys. They'll be taking over soon. So in verse 11, he answers. First of all, he says, anyone who divorces his wife, that would be the husband. The husband divorces his wife and marries another woman, commits adultery with her. This is a general statement. God meant marriage to be together. So if you divorce, unless it's for particular exceptions that he gives... If you go out and marry again, you're committing adultery. Now he says the same thing in the next verse to women. He said it first to the husbands. He says it to the wives. So notice how the religious leaders only question about men, not about women. Jesus is equal opportunity on the two genders. Now he says it to the women. And if a woman, if she divorces her husband, imagine that, a woman divorcing a man. And she marries another man. She also commits adultery. This is the general principle of the way that it works. Divorce was not meant from the beginning. But hearts got hardened. So we do have in the scripture a few exceptions of times when divorce is permissible. Here are those exceptions as I see them in scripture. Jesus taught one of them in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, when he said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, marries another woman, commits adultery. If you left the except marital unfaithfulness out of there, you'd have exactly what our statement in Mark 10 is, the general statement about marriage. If you tell, uh, if you tell anyone uh, who do divorces his wife, leave out the next phrase, and marries another woman, she commits adultery. Except for marital unfaithfulness. That is an exception. Some kind of sexual immorality where a person will not repent of it and continues to live in it. This is a grounds for divorce. doesn't mean you have to divorce. It is an open door, a possibility. That's one possible exception. A second one is located in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It deals with unbelief. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, if a brother, a husband, has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So do, you don't divorce for any and every reason. 
If you have an unbelieving spouse and they're living with you and they're willing to live with you, stay living with them. Don't divorce them. And verse 13 is the other way where the wife has a husband who is not a believer. If he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. This is the general rule. We don't divorce. But there are some exceptions. And the exception comes two verses later in verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves... Let him go. Let her go. A believing man or a woman is not bound under such circumstances. God's called us to live in peace. It would seem what what Paul is saying here is if your unbelieving spouse says to you, you and your Christianity, I've had enough. I'm out of here. And leaves, divorce is a possibility there. That is a second exception. doesn't mean you have to get a divorce. It is a possibility for you. It seems as though in Scripture there is a third possibility. It is a possibility dealing with abuse. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, there's a description of a man who divorces a wife and marries another. He doesn't take care of the first wife or whatever. He doesn't take care of her needs for food and clothing and so on. Uh, He, in a sense, abuses her. He doesn't take care of her as she should be cared for. So building upon this, we would think that if food and clothing is abuse, certainly if he beats her up or he emotionally abuses her, that would become grounds as well. I don't have full time, uh, enough time here to develop this third exception. If you need to chat with, I'll be glad to chat with you about it later. Divorce is not wrong in all cases. The general rule of thumb is we don't divorce, but there are specific exceptions that God gives in Scripture. He gives them because hearts get hard and they don't care and they don't love about the spouse anymore. If hearts are that hard, the marriage may well be over. If hearts were more repentant, obviously God can heal a hardened heart. But so often in a fallen world, we see that people are not willing to follow God's path. Their hearts are hard. We stand ready to help you, shepherd you through, pray with you about these things. I never counsel someone to get a divorce. I never counsel them not to get a divorce. That is their decision. I help to pray them through it, help them try to discern issues, look at the exceptions that God has given to examine if their situation meets those exceptions, one or more of them. As I close this sermon today, I want to say something about those who are divorced that feel like they are second-class citizens. This has to end. Some Christians make statements like, divorce is sin! I could not disagree more. Now, some of you might be shocked by that statement. I intend to prove it to you in the next few minutes, that divorce itself is not true, is not sin. And if it is sin, we have a real problem in the Bible. 
I'll take you there in just a moment. But when Christians say things like, divorce is sin, think about the poor person who has had the divorce. No wonder they feel second class. Sometimes divorce might be a divorce for the wrong reason. It could be sinful. But God has made exceptions in a few instances. If God made an exception, he's not making an exception for you to sin. God doesn't lead you towards sin. He doesn't give you sin options. Divorce may be a sin if it occurs for unbiblical reasons. Let me take you to a Bible verse that will haunt you. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. This is God speaking about his marriage relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. Israel who had sought after idols. God says in Jeremiah 3, 8, I gave faithful, uh, faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. You say, wait a minute, what does that say? It says God divorced Israel. That's what it says. Because she had gone after other gods, she had committed adultery with other gods. So God divorced Israel. If you think divorce is a sin, you just thought God sinned. And I don't think we want to go there. Divorce is not a sin in and of itself. In some cases it is, in other cases it is not. Now, some of you really don't like that. I feel badly for you. Deal with it. It's there. In fact, it's not only in Jeremiah 3, verse 8. It's also in Isaiah 50, verse 1. It's also in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's also in Ezekiel 23. Four different times in Scripture, the Scriptures talk about God the Father divorcing his nation Israel, his bride, because of her unfaithfulness. More than once, I've pointed out to a person going through a divorce, I've pointed this verse out to them. They thought their life was over because they were divorced. I point out to them that God also divorced Israel. He knows exactly what they're feeling. He's been there. There is a second verse that we need to understand that brings this more sharply into focus. It's Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. In Malachi 2, verse 16... God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God Almighty. You see, people conclude that if God hates divorce and God hates sin, therefore divorce is sin. That is very bad logic. Because if divorce is sin, that would mean God sinned and God can't sin. He divorced Israel. 
But God does hate divorce. He created it for a union between a man and woman, and he meant it to be permanent. And in this fallen world where hearts are hard and they sin against each other, this is what God hates. People don't have to live this way with such hard hearts. God knows the pain and the hurt that divorce causes people and children. And he hates this because there's a better way. Of course God hates divorce. I have rarely ever talked to a person that had to even get a divorce because it was so bad to stop the foolishness and the craziness and the sin against experiences. They still hate divorce, but at least it freed them from the situation. God knows and he understands. He cares deeply. So to talk to Christians as though they are second class because they have had a divorce, we will not do that here at Calvary. It is sad to say that in this convoluted world that we live in, with hearts that are so hard toward each other, sometimes divorce might be the best of the bad options. It may be the best way to hold a hard-hearted adulterer or abusive spouse accountable for their failure to deal with their sin. Hard hearts, it can show up in any of us. Any of us. We've got to allow God to keep our hearts tender. We can't continue to live in paths of sin because our hearts become harder and harder, and it can affect the key relationships in our lives, and certainly our marriages. If you stay with a soft heart toward God, he is quite capable of showing you his path for life. We stand ready to help where we can to pray with you. And yes, in some cases, to weep with you of the horrible things that happen in a fallen world. But God does love you. He cares. Bottom line, we must be very careful not to let our hearts become hardened. I think that is the key point of this passage as Jesus teaches on this subject. Harden hearts. They do not help us. They may allow us to maintain our own will and what we want to do. But where is that going to lead you? It's not going to go well for you or those around you. It's only a matter of time. If you're here today and you don't know the love of this Savior, a God who loves and forgives, he sent his Son into this world and he loves you so much, he punished his Son for your sin on that cross. Even before you would have repented to him and come asking for forgiveness. He knew what you would do. He knew of your rebellion. And yet he sent his son into this world and he punished his son for your sins so you could be forgiven and you could be with him forever. 
you can experience that love and forgiveness in Christ. Thank you, Father, for this instructional passage of Scripture. Soften our hardened hearts that we might know you better. Appreciate your love, your care. And for those that have been damaged by Christians, by churches, whatever, over this issue, would you please bring them healing and may your people accept them, love and appreciate them. And together, may we stand against hardened hearts, against sin, immorality, and abuse. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.